So welcome to the uh, Notre Dame International Security Center seminar series. I'm Eugene Goltz. I'm um, running the series this semester. And uh, it's my great pleasure to um, uh, introduce today's session uh, about um, the effects of UN peacekeeping on forced displacement. Um, we're, you know, it's going to be a great topic. It's sort of a, an interesting, slightly counterintuitive, uh, you know, from the very start of the title, um, and uh, be a really interesting result to discuss. Uh, before I get into introducing our guests, uh, for just a second, I want to remind people that our next seminar will be two weeks from today. We'll have uh, Jonathan Markowitz from uh, the University of Southern California. Um, uh, we may deeply dislike their football team, but we think some of their um, uh, professors are quite smart. And uh, Jonathan will be talking about um, international politics uh, in the Arctic, how um, climate change changing the um, uh, kinds of uses that people want to put to the Arctic gives us an opportunity to test some interesting theories about the sources of conflict in international relations. Um, uh, his book about this is actually has just come out. I have a, a brand new copy of the paperback. And um, uh, anyway, that'll be fun. Uh, very interesting. It's two weeks from today. Uh, the usual Zoom excitement. Um, but today we have this uh, great talk and uh, discussion to come on UN peacekeeping and forced displacement. Um, our, our guests are um, uh, my friend Lise Howard, who's a professor at uh, Georgetown University and um, uh, one of the great experts on UN peacekeeping. It's a real privilege to have her, we're really thrilled. Um, uh, it's also, you know, she's in Paris now uh, uh, for the year, but she goes to all kinds of exciting places. I don't know if, you know, um, they're not maybe always the destinations you'd want to go, but they are exciting because crazy things are happening. But, you know, the Central African Republic, uh, you know, as mentioned in today's paper, but all kinds of other interesting places where peacekeeping might come up. It's wonderful experience. She'll be very uh, interesting to hear from. The only other thing I'd say about Lise is that um, she and a different co-author of hers, um, won uh, the award for the best international security paper uh, or international security article published uh, uh, last year from the International Studies Association's International Security Studies section um, uh, this past year. Um, so, you know, she does great work. Um, today, she's presenting with Philip Savatic, uh, the Americanized pronunciation of his name, which he endorsed. Um, Philip is a, a PhD student at Georgetown, but is currently also in Paris. He's um, a visiting uh, student at Sciences Po this year, um, studying all things migration. And um, he's got a lot of interesting research projects going on, um, uh, some of them with Lise, like the one they're going to present now. So uh, thank you, Lise. Uh, take it away. Thanks so much, Yuse. Thanks, thanks for inviting us here in our weird Zoom world. Um, thank you, Anika, for all of your Anika Johnson for all of your technical help and keeping the trains running on time. Um, yeah, we're in Paris. It sounds so much more um, glamorous than it actually is. But anyway, there you go. Philip is like slaving away on his dissertation. I'm here. 
uh, teaching the introduction to international relations until 11 p.m. twice a week. But anyway, wine, wine, here we are. Um, yes, so we're talking today, um, you know, I, it's, it's actually just what you were saying. I've been working on peacekeeping for a long time. Philip's been working on on migration and displacement for a while. And we realized that there was a funny confluence going on between um, increased displacement and peacekeeping. And so we decided to dive into it a little bit more. And Philip's gonna be flipping the slides for us today. So Philip, if you could please do that. So we have this, um, I, think, I think a lot of us are aware of this phenomenon. Um, uh, of forced displacement, I actually didn't get enough get it didn't get a, to say enough about how much I'm missing visiting you at Notre Dame today. I really wish I really wish I were there with you in person. It would be it would be much more fun. But this is like a poor second, and you know one of these days, one of these days we'll we'll have this meeting in person. I wish that were today. So we're displaced. Some of us are displaced um in nicer ways than others but so here i am um so uh and definitely not forced displaced unlike about 80 million other people in the world who um have been forcibly displaced from their homes um we've seen a doubling in the last uh 10 years and mike dash has his hand up already so <laughs> i can go for it <laughs> He's just getting on the queue early because okay. he read the paper, so All right. not to worry. Got it. Not a question already. Okay, so we have, uh, you know, the, the number now has surpassed the number of forcibly displaced people since World War II, so we're, we've, we've surpassed the numbers of, of, of displaced um, experience during the world, in the world during World War II. Um, so forced displacement means People are displaced as a result of persecution, conflict, violence, human rights violations, or events seriously disturbing public order. Um, and these statistics are from the UNHCR, the UN High Commission for Refugees, uh, their 2019 annual report. So 26 million refugees, a bunch of them under the care of UNHCR. If you study the Middle East, you've probably heard of UNWA, which is the UN's um, uh, work and what they're doing in Palestine has been there for a very long time, caring for about five and a half million Palestinians. Um, we have, well, you see it in front of you here, a lot, an uh, uh, increasing number since Venezuela has fallen apart, but really it's not just a story of Venezuela, it's a story um, that we're seeing in, across a lot of conflict zones. Okay, Philip, if you could change the slide, please. Thanks. So, we're seeing uh, uh, a crisis in forced displacement uh, in conflict zones, not just in, well, especially in conflict zones. We have uh, here, if you see the, um, in, in blue, we're talking about IDPs, those are internally displaced persons. In red, we're looking at refugees. And the black line is the percentage of IDPs um, so when we first started this project, we thought that we were looking at uh, a crisis of internal displacement, and then we're realizing that it's 
it, it's actually not just about internal displacement. We're seeing an awful lot of refugees also. Um, but we do note, if you look at the blue trajectory here, uh, a surprising rise in displacement. Um, there's a bump between 2005 and 2006 that Philip's going to explain. It has mainly to do with data collection, but since 2006, we see a dramatic rise in the number of numbers of internally displaced people. Okay, let's go to the next one. So that's a little bit of context, and I just want to step back and talk about peacekeeping for a moment. Uh, Peacekeep the, the peacekeeping literature has really, the quantitative literature on peacekeeping has really exploded in the last, it's really even just in the last two or three years. Um, we have research teams at different universities with different funding streams, with different agendas on different continents, controlling for every variable you can imagine. Madhav Joshi has done a little bit of this. Dan Lindley has done a little work on peacekeeping also. I'm happy to see Dan with us today. Um, and when we look at, when we ask the question of whether UN peacekeepers are fulfilling their the first part of the peacekeeping mandate, which is protecting civilians, right? Are peacekeepers protecting civilians? The answer is unambiguously, they are protecting people from death. So there is no doubt that peacekeepers correlate with fewer civilian deaths in conflict zones. Um, so they're protecting civilians from death. They are also, we know that there has been a problem in peacekeeping of sexual abuse and exploitation. Um, that is what you read about in the newspaper. What you might not read are these pretty technical quantitative studies. We've had two of them now and both show in different ways that peacekeepers reduce levels of sexual and gender-based violence during conflict. So peacekeepers are successful at some aspects of protecting civilians, but they seem less successful at stemming forced displacement. So in other words, they're protecting people from being raped and from being killed. But they're, that this is coming at the price sometimes of maybe helping people flee their homes. Okay, so let's go to the next. So we see displacement growing across a lot of conflict zones. Um, and what we're doing in this project is treating displacement uh, as a dependent variable, but there, we've had a lot of work before this work that treats displacement as um, <clears throat> as a causal variable. And we know that displacement, if we think of the work of Aydin Saleyan and a number of others, um, a displacement has a whole lot of, un, of negative consequences, right? So just in the Central African Republic, for example, right now, because about a quarter of the population is displaced, we have people, we have a um, more than a million people in dire humanitarian need. We have higher incidences of violence. Um, the more displacement, the more terrorism. So ideal ground for breeding terrorists. Um, it's impossible to restart economically when people are refugees and displaced internally. Um, and it hinders movements toward the establishment of peace. Uh, so, uh, as long as 
populations are displaced, it's hard to hold elections, it's hard to get the political system back together. So the, the displacement causes a lot of problems that peacekeepers are also trying to address. But what we're trying to ask now is what are the sources of displacement? The big question in this paper. And our argument is that there are, of course, a variety of sources of displacement, but what we were surprised to find is more displacement where we see UN peacekeepers. So peacekeepers increase absolute levels of displacement and they increase the relative share of internal displacement. This is not on purpose, of course, this is because they're trying to save people's lives, save people from being killed. You would rather be displaced than dead. There is no question about that, of course. Um, it's just that this problem of displacement is getting out of control. Um, so why are peacekeepers moving people around? Um, the presence of UN peacekeepers, of course, reduces the relative risk of fleeing from home and fleeing, fleeing internally. Um, peacekeepers create safe regions. Um, Increasingly, for example, in South Sudan and the Central African Republic, we see people retreating to peacekeeping bases. So when their villages get attacked, they, where would you go if your village is attacked and there's no other source of safety? You go to the UN peacekeeping base and in, increasingly we're seeing um, sort of ad hoc inadvertent protection of civilian um, camps sprouting up around peacekeeping bases, even small bases. Peacekeepers also one of the primary uh, uh, <clears throat> um, functions of a peacekeeping mandate is to assist um, with hum humanitarian delivery. And that also sometimes in, um, includes providing safe passage for people um, fleeing conflict. Okay, so I have just introduced some basic ideas of what we're talking about here. Um, and I'm going to pass it off to Philip now to talk us through our graphs. Um, Philip is one of my star students at Georgetown. I'm really psyched to be working him on this on this paper. Um, I really enjoy working with my graduate students in general and talking to students. So if you want to talk to me at some point about any of the things I'm working on, I would be thrilled to talk with you. But so. Philip, I'm gonna hand it over to you now, go for it. Okay, all right, thanks so much. Um, and just a quick public thank you on my end to the organizers, I really um, appreciate uh, the opportunity to uh, be able to present here today and to be here today, so thank you so much. Um, Should have just so, said one more thing, <laughs> so sorry, yeah. Philip. So Philip's gonna, Philip's gonna talk us through the data and then I'm gonna follow up um, at the end talking about the Central African Republic. So that's how we're proceeding from here. Um, right, uh, exactly. So uh, having laid out our, our arguments, uh, one of the first decisions that we made was that uh, we decided that we were going to focus for now on the potential relationship between peacekeeping and displacement in Africa. Uh, and we decided to do this uh, first because a substantial majority of um, peacekeepers um, from around the world are African states. Uh, at the same time, African states have hosted systematically about one-third of all displaced persons globally. And in addition, from the ACLED database, we were able to get granular data on violence, which is obviously also related to displacement, in the time period that we're interested in, from 1997 to 2018. 
Um, and so for these reasons, we thought, you know, it'd be a good start to look at uh, if there's a potential relationship specifically in Africa. And so here in this figure, what we see um, in the blue line uh, is the number of IDPs uh, over time uh, annually across all African states. And in the red line, the total of refugees and asylum seekers who are uh, what I'll just, I'll just call them externally displaced, just to be quick. Um, and what we see in, in line with global trends, there's been a steady increase in the number of displaced persons. Uh, first, the uh, growth with IDPs and later um, from the 2010, early 2010s on a growth in the number of externally displaced. Um, what we, you know, you can see here between 2005 and 2006, there's, a, there's this interesting spike. Uh, and as Elise mentioned earlier, uh, in 2006, the UNHCR's mandate to help IDPs expanded and, and the organization began collecting data in a number of uh, countries where uh, it didn't collect data on IDPs before. So this is going to be a data issue that's important for our uh, analyses. Um, that said, at the same time, there was also uh, recorded a, a general growth in the number of IDPs uh, given conflicts in the DR Congo and other, other contexts. So, this spike is partially a result of, the, of data collection, partially a result of an actual growth in the number of, of internally displaced. Uh, here in this figure, um, those lines from the previous figure are now bars, blue for IDPs, red for external displaced. Uh, and they're stacked on each other so you can see the aggregate um, number of, of displaced persons over time and, and what we see, right, from the mid 2000 to 2018, the number of individuals displaced in Africa is, is roughly tripled. Uh, we also, in the black line represents the percentage of IDPs uh, as a share of all displaced uh, persons. And, and again, we see this uh, significant spike between 2005 and 2006, and then a sort of stabilization in, in, in terms of the number displaced at around two thirds displaced being internally displaced. Uh, again, that spike partially result of data, partially the result of actual um, of actual displacement rates. Um, now, in this in this figure, we, we're focusing in uh, specifically on the externally displaced refugees and asylum seekers. In the blue, we sh um, uh, now the blue represents the number of displaced individuals who are located in contiguous neighbors of their of the individuals' home countries. While in red we, uh, are the displaced who are not located in the contiguous neighbors to their home countries. And in the black line, we see the percentage who are of, of total externally displaced persons who are uh, in their neighboring states. And so this figure is important as it shows that a majority of individuals who choose to flee violence abroad are located in neighboring states, so between 70 and 90 percent. Um, this is going to be important for our analyses uh, later on as it shows the conditions in neighboring states are likely going to be very important uh, for whether or not individuals choose to flee abroad or not. Um, ultimately, even those who are, are not located in neighboring states probably first fled to a neighboring state prior to continuing their journeys on or to being resettled by the UNHCR or other organizations to, to a further off location. So conditions in neighboring states are going to be something that we need to consider in our analyses um, given, given these trends. Now, moving over to peacekeeping, what we see um, in this figure is the total number of um, average number of annual peacekeepers uh, present across all, of, all African states between 1997 and 2018. We see this significant deployment uh, of um, peacekeeping peacekeepers uh, in the early 2000s. 
Um, what's interesting here is that this, this massive deployment um, preceded this rise in first internal displacement and later on um, external displacement that we see. So it's a, an initial indication that there might be a, a relationship um, as we are, are anticipating, you know, sort of theoretically. Now, given uh, given the data that we have, what we what we show here is uh, is very important. On the right hand side, we we sort of split our data and we're looking at displaced um, displaced individuals, uh, both internal and external, uh, given the presence of UN peacekeepers in different countries over time. So, on the right hand side, we see the number of IDPs and the number of externally displaced. Uh, if there is at least one uh, peacekeeper present in a given country. And on the left, if there are no peacekeepers present whatsoever. So keep in mind a certain, as, as peacekeeper operations are deployed and leave different countries, the countries are present on the right and the left hand side. But what's important here is that peacekeepers are present in certain contexts and not in others. And so what this graph, um, what this figure shows is this dramatic rise on the right hand side in terms of the number of displaced a significantly more dramatic one than the increase. Uh, substantial, but not simply not as dramatic on the left-hand side where there aren't any peacekeepers. Of course, uh, as previous research has shown, um, peacekeepers are not sent to the easy conflicts. Uh, they're sent to the, on the contrary, to the difficult cases. So it's very plausible that the lines on the right-hand side of this figure would be even higher were peacekeepers not present in, in, in these cases. But nevertheless, um, this is you know, a very troubling trend. And it is curious that if peacekeepers are being successful at reducing violence, and violence is what triggers displacement, or, or what we would expect triggers displacement, that, that there's nevertheless this, this significant rise um, uh, over time in, in these cases. So in a way, this, this figure encapsulates our um, sort of the puzzle that, that, we're, that we're seeking to examine. Uh, and shows that there may be a trend, uh, that there may be a relationship between peacekeeping and displacement. Also important in this figure is that the um, spike between 2005 and 2006 it, in terms of number of IDPs is present on both sides, which means that the data collection issues weren't uh, tied to peacekeeping deployment, probably not tied to uh, peacekeeping deployment. Finally, here we, um, as we mentioned earlier, we're anticipating that uh, peacekeepers will likely lead to greater uh, relative share of internal as opposed to external displacement. Individuals, even in the face of great violence, tend to like to tend to prefer to stay close to home if they can. And since peacekeepers are deployed in certain countries, creating certain areas of safety that wouldn't otherwise be there, we would theoretically um, expect more internal displacement in locations where peacekeepers are present. So in this figure in the red, we see the um, percentage of all displaced who are internally displaced uh, when there are peacekeepers. And in blue, we see um, the same percentage in those cases where there are no peacekeepers present. Uh, and as expected in general, typically there, there are more uh, IDPs um, where there are peacekeepers, although it's not always the case and the difference is often uh, not that great. So possibly a relationship here um, uh, as uh, in line with our expectations. And, and I think uh, we would say this figure, you know, also demonstrates that this is something that should be investigated further. So having established the general trends uh, and, and, you know, uh, in both displacement and peacekeeping, uh, which both indicate that there, there might be something going on, uh, we want to sort of dig deeper and more systematically to assess 
whether there's a relationship as that there's a relationship between these two phenomena. And so we're deploying a mixed uh, method research design. And first, we're going we're conducting uh, quantitative analysis using sort of standard regression techniques and matching techniques to see if there's a general association between the number of peacekeepers deployed uh, to different contexts and both, excuse me, absolute levels of displacement, be it internal and external, just internal or just external, and then whether there's an association with the share of, this, of, of displacement that is internal as opposed to external. However, given that our data is not going to let us um, really make a causal argument with our, with our quantitative uh, analyses, uh, we're going to pair that up with the case study of the Minus Commission uh, and displacement in the Central African Republic. So at present, we've been able to, um, we've had time to uh, develop some initial um, uh, regression models that uh, look at uh, the relationship between the number of um, displaced and the share of displaced for IDPs um, given the number of uh, peacekeeper personnel. Uh, and in these models, we, we use one-year lag data and we include country and your fixed effects. Importantly, we uh, developed three sets of models. First, we use all the data that we have. Um, second, we identified those states for which there is no data or data on IDPs is unreliable before 2006. And we removed all those countries uh, from the analysis. So we're looking at all our, all our available years, our entire time period, but without um, these potentially problematic countries. And then, um, Finally, we developed models dropping all data before 2006 to ensure the robustness of our results in the event, you know, one is concerned that all data before 2006 is unreliable, uh, regardless of the countries. Uh, so here is a uh, table of our initial results given using all our data. Um, what, you know, really quickly what we found, right, we find a positive uh, and significant relationship between the number of UN personnel and the number of total displaced in the first column, the number of IDPs in the second column, and the number of exter externally displaced in the third column. In the interest of time, I won't go into the control variables. Um, we can discuss that perhaps if the audience is interested in the Q&A, but we control for various conditions in the country of origin of displaced persons and in neighboring states. And now a lot of the coefficients are of counterintuitive or some of the coefficients, not a lot, but some are very counterintuitive. So we, we need to work further on our model specifications and to really understand um, our, our control variables and, and the way they're related to each other. But for now we have this initial result and this initial result holds if we remove uh, here the problematic countries um, which have no data on IDPs or, or problematic data before 2006. Uh, and here if we only use data from 2006 on. Finally, um, here, the DV has changed to the percentage of IDPs as a share of all displaced. Uh, in the first column, we show all, uh, we use all our data. In the middle column, we use only all our, our entire time period without um, certain countries. And in the uh, rightmost column, we only use data from 2006 on. And so here, as, it, as we anticipate, we, we, we have this, um, positive relationship between the number of uh, UN peacekeepers and the share of IDPs. But this finding goes away when we only use 2006 data onwards. Um, so overall, uh, we have some initial indications that our theoretical expectations uh, are, are well-founded. 
uh, there is a relationship, but uh, we clearly, we have a lot more work to do um, on these analyses. Um, so right now, now I will turn it back over to Lise, uh, who will talk about our case study on the Central African Republic and the News Commission. Thanks, Philip. Thanks so much. So there are a variety of reasons why we're looking at this, this one in particular, and it's actually the, the most important reason is, is because that's what I was seeing doing field research in the Central African Republic. This is basically what I was seeing with my own eyes. So in 2015, I started doing research in the Central African Republic. And last summer, I went back um, for an evaluation of the UN mission, the MINUSCA mission for, for the Norwegians. Um, and we have, so we have the Central African Republic. It's the size of France and Belgium combined. So it's a big country that you've probably never heard of, or at least a lot of people have never heard of it, um, in a really difficult neighborhood, right? So we have South Sudan and Sudan that have been at war in a really long time. Chad's been at war on and off. Cameroon, we have the Anglophone crisis right now. Cameroon is usually pretty stable, even though they've had a dictator in power there for like four decades or something. And Congo Brazzaville, Congo Brazzaville usually is holding together Okay, also DRC, I think you probably have a pretty good idea of the Democratic Republic of Congo. That one's pretty rough. So difficult neighborhood, no outlet to the sea, recovering from incredibly brutal, really just one of the worst colonial experiences I've ever heard of. If you thought that things were bad in DRC, the Central African Republic, the Central African Republic lost about half of the people in its population between 1880 and 1920 because of French colonialism, introducing disease and, and, a very, and working people to death. So it's recovering from uh, a really, really difficult history in a hard neighborhood. Um, and, and at the same time here, let's move to the next slide. Um, it hasn't, it, it hasn't been super violent. So uh, four and a half million people, we have this Muslim Christian divide as one of my Central African friends explained to me, we're about 80% Christian, 20% Muslim and about 100% animist. So if you know, that's like an exaggeration, but Religion does not work there the way we think of how religion works here. Um, I will note that most of the fighting right now is between Muslim ethnic groups. It's not Muslim Christian. Um, and and a, an important dimension of the fighting is simply between nomads or Pal or um, Fulani. It's people who are moving across borders who have always moved across with their cattle and farmers who don't appreciate it when their crops are being trampled and a variety of other things. And this is a problem that's not located only in the Central African Republic, of course. It's, a, it's all across um, just below the Sahel. Okay, so uh, a tough place. We've had a lot of different types of international interventions. Not a lot of war, though. I mean, really, the war began in 2013. Um, and we're at a state now where armed groups control between 75 and 80% of the territory, despite the fact that they have a democratically elected president, he's a math professor, 
he's pretty awesome actually in my book, but I, I keep getting, uh, I don't know. <laughs> You're not supposed to have preferences when it comes to leaders, but this guy, um, well, if you would, if you could imagine somebody who's going to bring a country like this out of misery, it would probably be this guy and he's up for re-election in December and who knows if that'll work. Um, Central Africa has tremendous natural resource wealth, diamonds, gold, the uranium that France used to make its first nuclear weapon. Um, and it's in this persistent cycle of violence. And I don't know how well you can see this chart right here, but basically there's this insecurity people are constantly in fear living in fear that some another group for a variety of reasons might come in and attack their village and so what we've had very frequently in this con in this conflict um, especially since 2013 is somebody coming in um, from the outside attacking a village and then folks in the village getting very upset and going and attacking another one and chasing everybody out. So we have a lot of internal displacement is, is one of the main characteristics of this fighting. And I would also note sexual, sexual and gender-based violence. So there's more sexual and gender-based violence than there is killing in this one. So um, a band of people will come in and everybody retreats to the bush for a little while and then come and then so they're displaced for a little while and then they come back to their villages. So it's kind of this flux um, and then of, uh, of people moving around. So right now, um, about a quarter of the population is displaced uh, outside the country. Uh, where are we now? Um, yeah, a four million, it's more than a million people are displaced both outside and inside the country. So we have this low level insecurity. That means people can't work and it's really hard to um, uh, farm because you never know when your farm is going to get attacked or somebody's gonna trample your stuff. And so people aren't working, so there's no tax base. The government has no means to fund itself. And as a, as a result, there's no state, there's no functioning army, there's no real functioning police force. It's hard for kids to go to school. And as a result of no state, we're kind of in a Habesian world of insecurity where it's just, it's really hard. People feel paralyzed. It's just very hard to start functioning. And into this situation, we have this massive UN peacekeeping mission. Philip, if you could change the slide. Oh, sorry. Um, well, there's just so we see how the peacekeeping what's happened with peacekeeping here. So um, we have uh, a spike in violence in 2013 and 2014, the arrival of French troops. Um, and I mentioned that French's difficult relationship with this country. French troops came and basically stopped the violence in its tracks. Um, if somebody attacked civilians, they had a very limited mandate, right? You attack civilians, you can expect to be attacked by French. And so they basically stopped the violence and with them they had this peacekeeping mission, this huge peacekeeping mission helping to build schools and 
negotiating local peace deals and helping helping to build roads and doing all kinds of things that peacekeepers do in a big multi-dimensional peacekeeping mission. So that was going great for a couple of years. That's when the Pope came to visit. Um, they held their first round of elections. The economy started picking up, people started returning home, and then the French left and the peacekeepers were left to try to do all this on their own. And we saw a spike in 2017 of violence again. And now it's gradually coming under control as the peacekeepers engage in more coercion. So, and, and, in, and in facilitating people leaving. So moving people around as opposed to helping people to stay and consolidate peace. So the title of MINUSCA is the, it's the French title, but translating into English, this is a stabilization mission. The, the goal of this mission is to stabilize. And with nearly 14,000 people, a budget that is three times the size of the national budget, they are stabilizing. All of the major powers want this mission to continue stabilizing because Central Africa is at, it's right in the middle of what could become, you could foresee this becoming a huge conflict if we think of, we have Boko Haram and some, some Islamic extremist movements in the West, we have Al-Shabaab in the East, um, lots of terrible things going on in Libya and Central Africa is right in the middle. So if we wanted to have this um, a kind of uniting of, of terror-minded organizations near the uranium, that is conceivable. Um, so this mission is stabilizing Central Africa in terms of death, but not in terms of displacement. Let's move on. Um, and these are just some pictures from um, my fieldwork in the Central African Republic. We see this is a peacekeeper from Congo Brazzaville protecting students. Um, we see the Pope. Uh, there are lots of murals of the Pope. This is his first trip to Africa. Um, that was when people were really helpful, hopeful that things would turn around quickly. And um, this is a picture that I took from the front of a UN vehicle. You just see that the roads are really bad. A lot of people say that the main enemy in the Central African Republic is the roads, because um, it's it's really hard to move around. And I will just note that you know these kids here. Um, this is actually uh, between two. The this guy is standing at a very contentious spot between two neighborhoods, and you see. Um, especially the Muslim population in, in and around this town has been forced out. They've been forced out of their homes. Okay, can we move on? So um, what we see here are, is a dramatic rise in peacekeeping personnel, obviously since 2014. Um, um, uh, a pretty steady upward line of people leaving the country. If you can leave the Central African Republic, people have been leaving. It is really hard to build a life there. And I will just note again, I, without exaggeration, that there is a central state and at the same time, armed groups control 75% of that vast territory. Um, but we see with the IDP lines, we see this like spiky relationship going on. Um, that mirrors pretty much 
pretty much what's happening with civilian violence also. Um, trying to get a handle on it. So our next steps, Philip, if you can, and this is another way of looking at, at displacement, both um, IDPs and refugees. And let's move on again. So our next steps in this project, we are working through them. Sorry, we've spoken a little bit longer than we intended to. Um, we're, we're working through our analyses, bringing in some more fixed effects, some working on our models, a little bit of, um, um, we'll introduce some matching also. Um, and we're working on the case study now. So uh, I was supposed to go back there in December to uh, monitor the elections. I seriously doubt that's gonna happen because of COVID and a number of other things. Uh, but so we're gonna try doing field research by Zoom. <laughs> I mean, I have a lot of contacts in the Central African Republic already. So we're gonna see how that goes. Um, asking folks in UNHCR and peacekeepers themselves uh, uh, what they think about this, this problem of displacement, both within and outside of the country. I will say right now that it is preventing the Central African Republic from being able to consolidate peace, no matter how many peacekeepers are there and how long they stay there until people can return to their homes. There's no way they're gonna be able to turn the corner. All right. Let's take some questions. Thanks. Thank you, Lise and, um, and Philip. Uh, really interesting stuff. Um, uh, we have uh, several people on the, on the list now. So just to remind everyone, if you want to get on the list, um, raise your hand in the Zoom function. And, um, and I'll call on you in order. And we'll unmute you so you can ask your question and leave you unmuted until the answer to your question is finished, so you can have a little bit of a dialogue. Please also turn on your video for the duration of your Q&A so that Lise and Philip can feel like they're actually talking to someone. Thank um, you. Which is nice. And um, uh, the other thing is that if you do want to jump in at some point, don't use this to skip the queue with your question. But if you have a question that's on point for something that's already being said, you can give the thumbs up, which is one of the other options in the participants uh, area of Zoom, and I'll see the thumbs up, and then I can recognize you for a quick interjection, a quick follow-up question. Um, but um, uh, Lise did note that uh, uh, Mike Dash's hand was up first, but I'm not gonna call on you yet, Mike, because we um, are trying to have students ask questions. We want to encourage that. And so uh, you're on the top of the non-student list, Mike. But uh, um, at least I think, uh, judging by a quick Google, that Abdul Jalil Moad is a student. Uh, I haven't met you. But please go ahead, Abdul. Hi. Um, that was really interesting. I, one of my questions was just about so these cycles of violence that you mentioned in which there's raids or attacks happen, people flee to the bush. Um, where they kind of wait before it's safe to return. How long does this, um, like what's, how long are they staying out there? And how long it, is it, does, you know, the average um, yeah. stay displaced? I know, that's such a good question. So it used to be, it used to be more frequent, right? So people would move out and then move back in pretty quickly. And the problem now is that it's just safer not to go back. 
or at least people feel like it's safer not to go back, which means that more and more peacekeeping bases are having people stay, like set up camp around them. Um, so we're seeing fewer people return, um, internally displaced people return. And then also, you know, there are, well, there are like seven or 800,000 people who are refugees outside of the country. And I, I know a whole bunch myself who really want to go home. They want to go home for the elections. They want to start rebuilding. And it's just simply, it's just too hard. It's not stable enough to be able to return home. So um, it's, it's stable enough that we, it's not on the headlines. And if the UN and the French hadn't intervened, there would have been a genocide in the Central African Republic. This would have been like another Rwanda. And so we're not there. It's not that. Um, and if they left, I think there would be a genocide. Um, it, it would be a genocide against Muslims. And I will also say that in the Central African Republic to say that there's one group of Muslims is, a, is, a, is an amazing overgeneralization. So there, um, the category of Muslim is so diverse, it's hard even to imagine how diverse it is, but you know, there are some people who are moving around there are some ethnic groups that converted to Islam um, when everybody converted, like, you know, a couple thousand years ago. And then there are some, there are like Lebanese traders, right? So it's just a, it's a big mix of a lot of different, um, it's a big category. Uh, um, but also uh, vulnerable. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for your question. Great. So I don't want to deny Mike for too long because, you know, okay. he's a good friend and smart guy and all that. So, and director of NDISC. So, uh, Mike, you're up. And I had the pleasure of meeting his daughter this morning. That was awesome. <laughs> I think you're good. Uh, you met the best part of the family. And, and also, I was uh, sorry to, uh, uh, expose you to the inter internal scandal of Endisk with the uh, uh, people constantly flouting uh, Gene's uh, student-aphilic uh, rules. Um, uh, <clears throat> I really uh, enjoyed the paper and I uh, very much wish uh, uh, that you and Philippe could have come to town and we could have not only had a good seminar but uh, also a nice dinner as well. So but, uh, we make do uh, with the situation. Um, <clears throat> I had two um, comments or questions uh, about your argument. I mean, the, uh, you know, the basic evidence that you present that uh, peacekeeping and uh, displacement uh, are, uh, you know, strongly associated uh, is very compelling. Um, but you, uh, make the observation a couple of times throughout the paper that you think that this is inadvertent. Um, and it may well be, um, but uh, I'm wondering what the evidence is for that. I mean, you know, because I'm, I'm thinking, you know, Heim Kaufman's argument about uh, partition and population transfers 
suggests that it's well known that, you know, if you want to save lives, which is what uh, the peacekeepers are doing, um, that uh, particularly in situations of uh, unfavorable demographic geography, the best thing to do is to uh, uh, transfer populations. Um, and I don't know quantitatively how you would, uh, you know, suss this out. Um, you know, it, so this would probably put a, a large burden on the case study um, to, uh, you know, to make the case that it's inadvertent if that's, uh, you know, a, a, a hill that you uh, want to die on. Second uh, quick point, just on the, uh, the data analysis, uh, and this I guess probably is uh, more for Philippe. Um, I'm, as I understand the, uh, the data analysis, you're basically making a monotonic argument about the number of troops um, and uh, the number of displaced. Is that right? Yeah. That is right. Okay, so here, here's the, uh, the uh, issue I had is uh, what about the possibility that the relationship is not monotonic but curvilinear? In other words, you know, if you could saturate the country with peacekeepers, uh, you could probably uh, maintain the status quo without people having to, uh, to relocate. Um, you, you argue in the paper that the problem with peacekeeping is, you know, that they're not uh, generally, um, you know, configured for combat, and that's a possibility. But another possibility is uh, that that's not the key thing. It's just that peacekeeping operations uh, tend to be uh, relatively uh, small in number. So I'm wondering if you've given any thought uh, to that issue. Uh, but thank you very much. Very interesting and uh, thought-provoking paper. Good. So I'll take the first one, Philip, you take the second. If that sounds good. So I, we say inadvertent. Uh, that's a, it's a great insight, and thank you, and we're going to think about this a little bit more. Um, and I'm also sorry that we're, we're not having dinner tonight, and I would have really enjoyed that, and I hope we'll have the occasion to do that either in, um, either in your neck of the woods or in ours. <laughs> I mean, I don't know about Paris, but certainly D.C. <laughs> um, so uh, for the for the question of whether it's inadvertent, inadvertent in the sense that obviously there's no part of the mandate that says that peacekeepers would facilitate displacement in order to save lives. But that is what they're doing and they are doing it on purpose. So you're, you are right. I sh we should think about that a little bit more carefully. Um, they, I think what it is is that they don't want to be doing it. <laughs> Yeah, they probably want to be doing it, and they probably don't want to admit that they're no, doing it. But they don't, and they don't. I'm quite certain that they are not going to be happy to see this tremendous spike in displacement when peacekeepers are present. I mean, that is just a problem. It is a problem, especially if the goal in the end is to leave. It just makes it harder for them to leave in the end if so many people are displaced. Okay, 
and they're not configured for combat. That is the argument of my most recent book is that they they can do a lot of things, but one thing they cannot do is supply security guarantees. Do, do they do, do people who are IDPs ever get reclassified as people who moved? like resettled, they don't, they're not going to, like refugees aren't coming necessarily, asylum seekers aren't coming back. Refugees might come back, that's the goal. But, you know, if you just say, no, 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 we don't, these aren't internally displaced people anymore. This is people who are moving to create a stable future. Right. Would people be, would, would that lead to the same kind of political problem for the UN? Right, I know. No, it's a really good question. It's that I have seen that in, in well, certainly in Sudan, South Sudan, and in Congo. So, you know, people leave and they've decided that they're going to be in a different place. And, and eventually that, that's what happens. That is not what, that has not been the case in the Central African Republic so far. And largely that's because armed groups control so much of the country. So it, so much of the territory is up for grabs. I mean, if you could imagine what it's like to live in, in like the proverbial state of nature, there you got it. It's really, really rough. And so people just aren't, people aren't moving. It's very hard to have any sense of permanence almost no matter where you are. Even in Bangui in the capital, which is, fairly stable. Um, oh, I, I, we didn't show you any pictures of that, but people have had their businesses destroyed so many times now that they're unwilling to, they're unwilling to build like a brick and mortar building anymore. It's basically you just like put up a little bit of whatever scraps you find to have your site of commerce, but nobody is willing to invest in the building itself because people are so worried that their shop is going to be destroyed again. It's that unstable. Um, thank you so much for the questions. Um, I think that uh, in terms of the a curvy linear relationship, I think that's a really interesting point. Uh, also, we'll have to think about it more. My gut reaction is that, I, you know, it is true if there were millions of peacekeepers that could be behind every single person then yes, um, that would, you know, you would end up having no displacement. But I think that that's even, even starting to get that drop would require so many, so many troops, so many, so much, so many personnel that in fact, you know, in reality, we're, we would only be looking at a part of the curve that's relatively linear. Um, but that you know, I, I think I'll have to think about it more. I mean, I think it's it's a it's a fair point. Um, when how 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 to how to correctly model that? So, yeah, thank you for that. That's just my my initial gut reaction. In terms of just quickly, in terms of misclassified um, IDPs, I would think that would uh, indicate an underestimate. In fact, like there's there might be a a, a number of people who have been forced to flee or feel forced compelled to leave their homes and have just decided to be somewhere else to live somewhere else permanently and aren't aren't counted as an internally displaced person so those individuals would potentially be idps that are not counted 
And I don't think that there would be a difference uh, between where peacekeepers are present and where they aren't in that sort of undercount. So I think even if there is an undercount, that it may very well be that it would be it would be sort of consistent across the data. Um, but again, that's uh, my my gut reaction. Um, definitely, uh, also a great point. Thank you. Great, thanks. Um, why don't we take the next question? We'll go back to a student, Benjamin Earhart. Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Howard and uh, Philip, for speaking with us today. I had a quick question uh, pertaining towards the beginning of your presentation. You talked about um, the misconception that peacekeepers lead to a rise in sexual violence when they're peacekeeping. And it's interesting because that's a, a, a narrative that I had long believed. I, when I was a high school student, I participated in Model United Nations, and essentially I would go to these conferences and we would debate and one of the solutions that often came up and was often shot down was peacekeepers. And everybody would say, well, peacekeepers lead to nothing but a rise in sexual violence. So I'm interested as to whether you think that this narrative persists today, because that was a few years ago, but whether you think the narrative persists today, despite all of the quantitative uh, data that you evidence to show that that's not the case, or if you think that there's just some miscommunication gap between the data and the media communicating that narrative. Thank you. Thanks for that question. It's um, it's so outrageous. I think you know we're living in this era of outrage, and it's so outrageous when peacekeepers commit acts of sexual violence that it's so like you cannot help but report on it. And so there's similarly when it's clergy or something like that, right? So it's so um. It's so wrong that it's that you have to report on it. And when things are going right, there's just the story is not really there, right? So um, it's not going to grab the headline, and it's not going to sell whatever product you have to sell. So um, uh, there is very good quantitative data that shows that peacekeepers increase. Um, the risk that women, that young women will engage in transactional sex, right? So the presence of peacekeepers increases prostitution. And that is obviously a problem in peacekeeping. But peacekeepers proportionately are not committing acts of sexual violence. Um, either, so the troops themselves, it's actually civilians that have higher rates of 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 abuse than troops because if you think about troops they're in a standard military chain of command um and so it's actually quite rare that they would break the chain to do something like that um, but when they do uh you will know about it because actually every single instance now is reported on the oios website so every time there's an allegation of of abuse now, it's made public. It's made public who, which country the troop came from. Um, we know who is investigating the case and um, and and what the status of the investigation is. So there's they've increased transparency um, in in how they're dealing with sexual abuse right now. What they have not adequately dealt with is the exploitation part of that equation, is the prostitution part, in my view. Um, 
so, and how to change that narrative. It's once you have an idea of how something works, it's really hard to change it. And the UN absolutely cannot say, actually, we are preventing sexual violence. Like no one would believe that. <laughs> Even if you have a mountain of statistical information in front of you, because that's just not what, it, uh, they can't say, look at these statistical studies. I don't know, and I don't, I don't really know. Um, uh, I don't really know how you would change that. Or in some ways, there's a part of me that maybe doesn't even want to, just because the more pressure is on them to be mindful of this, probably the better they are at making sure it doesn't happen. <laughs> so, yeah, interesting. But, Thank you. Yeah, but it's a tough one. It's a good question. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, next up is uh, Dan Lindley. Great, thank you. Thank you so much for a great talk. Uh, it's good to have some peacekeeping back in the house. I wish we were organizing an expedition to Paris. So uh, <laughs> maybe that's the way to solve this problem. And I don't believe your claim that it's not as glamorous maybe as it was, but you know, it's still, yes, I mean, come on. Uh, in any case, two points here. I'm still trying to wrap my head around your puzzle, which is, there's an assumption that peacekeepers are causing some sort of zone of relative peace. We'll call it PKO land. If that's true, then why are there more IDPs than, than before? So something's going on, and obviously this is the puzzle that motivates you too. And I'm wondering if something's happening on the line where the PKO land hits the conflict. And I'm thinking there could be two ways in which the PKO is affecting the nature of the conflict itself. One, it could be dispersing the conflict so that there's more violence in more areas outside of PKO land and therefore affecting more people and therefore creating more IDPs. Or it could be concentrating the conflict, increasing the pain of the conflict and causing more IDPs. Um, so I'm just wondering if there's something about the nature of the conflict and the action of the PKO to the conflict that might be part of the explanation. Second point. You kind of went a little fast over this, but you said in the mandate to protect civilians in the mid And I'd like to know exactly what policies followed from that. If there was more food, um, aid, you know, shelter, transport to follow up on that. Uh, and if there's a huge change, and there was in your data in terms of numbers of IDPs, then it's very possible your argument should be more on the deliberate side than the inadvertent side because it's very possible that these policy changes that followed from increase on protection of civilians, that's causing the displacement. And that might not be a bad thing at all if people are living better and being well cared for uh, relative to being on the conflict, you know, at the edge of the conflict zone. Um, so those two points actually kind of interact, but I'd love to hear your thoughts and great talk. Thank you so much. Great, thanks, Dan. Nice to see you, sort of. <laughs> I didn't actually understand. I we we like you you. Um, I didn't hear everything there. So um, it's whether peacekeepers are dispersing conflict. There. So it's true that um, people tend to try to fight in places where peacekeepers are not watching. So yeah, that might be an unintended consequence of peacekeeping is that people would be 
subsequently fleeing places where where there's more fighting where you know because it's it's easier to fight if peacekeepers aren't watching um so that might be a part of well, I didn't understand what you meant by increasing the pain of conflict. What do you mean by that? Well, I could a world in which conflict might be at a lower level without the peacekeepers and people might sense more of an existential threat to their cause with peacekeepers in the house. So windows of opportunity could be opening or closing, depending on what your point of view is. Peacekeepers could shift the focus geographically to places that concentrate the battle more I, I just, I don't know, but there are all sorts of ways I can imagine it's constant the fight and therefore it's worse and therefore you get more people combat or dispersing the fight further out into different parts of the countryside and that therefore increases the incentive for the locals to IDP themselves to PKO land for relevant. Yeah. I, I think there's some, there's a bit of all of that, right? So um, we tend to see fighting breaking out in places where there aren't peacekeepers. Usually peacekeepers follow the fighting, right? So wherever there's fighting, they'll set up a base there. And then, you know, it's kind of like the whack-a-mole and, and then it moves to another place. So you wind up with this um, and they're always constantly talking about whether we should be having these small temporary operation spaces, as they call them, these TOBs that, that, do, that are quite effective because once you have a TOB, it means that the humanitarians can come in and, and deliver aid and it, it means that things can stabilize. Or should they be more expeditionary and more nimble, right? So they have bigger bases and they once there's fighting, they move out from the base to try to stop it. And then they go back home. So they've tried um, in, in all of the missions right now, they've tried both models and, you know, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't, but there's no doubt that across the board, if you look at places where there are peacekeepers as opposed, so all else equal, where there are peacekeepers, there is less death. <laughs> Right, so whether it's within a country or civil wars with peacekeepers as opposed to without them, there is less death. It's just now increasingly we have more displacement. <laughs> Philip, did you want to add anything? Yeah, I could just, I think, I think these are great ideas and I, I think as we delve into the case study, we might be able to get some data at the subnational level or the subnational level within the Central African Republic and sort of try to get at the geographic dispersion of violence and actually test um, quantitatively potentially um, whether geographic scope is related to the number of displaced. Um, but I think with our, um, our general idea is that if you have a zone that is peaceful, uh, that is nearby to your home, most people when they're fleeing violence, they want to flee nearby. And if the general level, if there is a place nearby that is safe, then more people will be incentivized to leave their homes because they can find somewhere close to home that's safe. So even if an individual is potentially threatened, is, uh, is not sure whether to leave, uh, if there weren't peacekeepers, they would decide to stay because people don't like to leave their homes. But since there are peacekeepers, 
that individual would be like, well, actually, there's something real close. There's an area really close by that's safer. I should go. Uh, and that calculation ultimately leads to more uh, internally displaced people than there would be without peacekeepers. Um, but that's not, um, you know, that's not your ideas, I think, uh, and your suggestions are compatible with that uh, as well. Both, both phenomena could be happening at the same time. Yeah. Thank I you. think you guys talk a lot about the positive incentives of PKO land. I was trying to talk about what's negative on the ground actually being shifted by PKO land itself. And then I also want to know about the policies when the mandates change towards more civilian protection. If that actually, it seemed like yeah. it caused a big spike and therefore it's not inadvertent at all, UN policy to get people out. And you know what was happening on the ground that affected that policy? More shelter, so, more tent food. Right, so, the protection of civilians policy, that, that became the mandate of all peacekeeping missions in 1999. So it predates the 2006 spike. Uh, what what changed in 2006 was the policy of collecting data on IDPs, just because they weren't collecting it as much before. <laughs> well, that'll so, do it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thank you. So there's kind of a a not very satisfying explanation for that one. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Yeah, but, but I, I just real quick, I think, I mean, there is, you know, so even afterwards, there's, you know, there's that spike in at that very moment, which is partially the result of this data collection. But later, the, the numbers really move up. Yeah, uh, that's so, nothing to do with. That don't yeah. have to do with data collection. So there's still, there's still something uh, going on in, in the long run, for sure. Uh, just since just like since the Central African Republic, really. So it's just since 2014-ish. It's very recent. Yeah. That spike in IDPs. Yeah. Um, uh, so we have 17 minutes left, just to keep everyone uh, aware of yeah. that. There are uh, um, three people on the queue, and if I have a moment, I'll ask a question, but I'm the marginal one. So I want to go to a, another a graduate student this time, and then, you know, we're going to keep ping-ponging. So Ilana uh, uh, Rothkopf. Hi, thank you both um, for your presentation and for the paper. I really enjoyed reading it. Um, so two quick questions. The first one is about peacekeepers in neighboring states. And so I know it doesn't really help you with the argument about IDPs, but I was wondering what role you see for um, peacekeeping missions in neighboring states. And because I think it fits the logic of your argument that if you live near the border and there's a concurrent uh, peacekeeping mission in a neighboring state and it's easier or safer for you to get across the border to them than to get to wherever the peacekeepers are um, in your home country that you might do that instead. And so I wonder if, Keeping that in mind, you're actually perhaps understating the um, effect that you're finding with respect to absolute displacement. So again, I know it doesn't help the argument about IDPs, but it could be contributing to this sort of same logic of your argument. Um, and the second question I had has to do with um, whether there's a potentially a way you could leverage other variation in the mandate of the peacekeeping missions, particularly um, the multi-dimensional versus more traditional models or the just different mandates and of these sort of fragmented multi-dimensional missions, like are they tasked with DDR, are they 
observing elections? Are they providing technical assistance to constitution making? And these other things that we didn't traditionally can think of as part of peacekeeping that now are. Um, so yeah, thank you. Great, super informed question. Um, yeah, so the, the big five peacekeeping missions in Africa now are in Mali, in the Central African Republic, in Congo, in South Sudan, and in Sudan, in Dar the Darfur region. The one in the Darfur region is winding down. So all of those states export people, right? People are, they, they are all have people fleeing them to their more stable neighbors. And all five of those with the exception of Sudan right now, possibly, you would rather be in a neighboring state than in one of those, pretty much. So I don't think you see people fleeing stability across a border in order to be closer to peacekeepers. Maybe, maybe you might see that in the Oboe region of the Central African Republic, which is very close to South Sudan, and it's basically South Sudan. So I, I, guess, I guess there would probably be the one place I could imagine where you could see people leaving the Central African Republic to go to South Sudan. So you're leaving the lowest country on the human development index to go to the second lowest country on the human development index. It's like, yeah. <laughs> Um, there is no electricity, there are no roads, there is no running water, there is like nada. So you, um, it's basically going from one part of the jungle to another. Um, so I don't think we would see people leaving any kind of stability to go across a border to be nearer to peacekeepers. We do see that within countries though. Um, uh, in terms of the multidimensional mandates, uh, so there's, it, it's a really good question. I mean, we, um, even with a really big complex mandate with DDR and which they, all of those five have, right? They're, they're all, um, None of those missions is anywhere close to reducing the mandate enough for it to become more simple, like the one in Cyprus. Um, so they're just, it's just, it's just a long way away right now. Uh, even though there's pressure in Sudan, you know, Sudan has a democracy movement now and because of budgets, there's, there's a lot of pressure to close the mission in Darfur, even though people in Darfur are still saying, a lot of us are gonna die if the peacekeepers leave. But there's, there's a lot of pressure to close that mission now. Thanks. Great. Um, so next up is uh, Barbara Roth. Thank you so much for the talk and the paper. I really enjoyed both of them. Um, I had, I guess, one comment and one question. Um, on page 20, you noted that you were sort of surprised by the finding uh, that there's a negative correlation between population size and um, displacement. Uh, and I was wondering if I could offer a potential explanation. Um, to the extent that you're kind of framing displacement as a last resort, uh, it seems plausible to me that a larger population kind of reduces your individual chance of being targeted, right? If you're kind of in a large group um, and the rebels are like 
picking people off. Uh, it's possible, I think, that maybe that might be why you're seeing that correlation. Uh, so just a small thought there. And then the second question I had, um, I know you mentioned you ran some other, other models as well, um, but I was wondering if you looked into running a diff and diff. I think that that might be a way to get around what I think might be an issue here of sort of like bi-directional causality, basically, that, you know, the peacekeeping missions are probably deployed to places where there's a big displacement crisis or in the anticipation that there will be a big displacement crisis. Um, and I know you used a lag and that gets you a little leverage, but um, I guess it seems like that relationship is so like intertwined that maybe um, a diff and diff might let you um, sort of examine that uh, more, more closely. So thank you. I really appreciated your talk. Yeah, I thank you so much for these, uh, for these thoughts. Um, I, I think they're both fantastic. I don't really have a response. We, we haven't had a chance to, to, to develop our models further. This is what we have at this stage. Uh, it's what we want. We need to keep working on it. And yeah, there's this, obviously there's this endogeneity that we don't really resolve as it stands. So this is very preliminary. Um, I, and yeah, I think your, your interpretation is plausible. I had, I had not thought of that and it, it could be the case initially. Having seen that, uh, I think we were worried this might be indicative of some issue and we need to like dig into these variables that we're using further. But um, I, I think that's uh, plausible. I think people definitely prefer not to leave. And if you have more people, then you have more people who prefer not to leave and therefore less people leave. That's a, that's a great logic. Um, diff and diff, uh, yeah, I think we would have to see um, yeah, I think it could work. Yeah, I am. Um, I'd have to look at the data and, and the timing and stuff. Um, but yeah, thank you. I guess just thank you for those suggestions. Really appreciate it. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you so much. I think the difference in differences is a good suggestion. I have to think more about that specific one, but I was really uncomfortable with the one year lag. Um, I'll just stick that in because it seems to be inconsistent with the mechanism that you're proposing for the violence causing the transfer or the peacekeepers causing the transfer. Like the number of peacekeepers you had last year does not attract people to peacekeepers for safety this year. It just doesn't make any sense. So you need to do something that's better than that. Um, but enough of my blathering, um, Ben Dennison. Great, thank you so much for the paper. Uh, both of you just try to be quick since we're running out of time. Um, the two quick model points, just to build on that, uh, I, I, I see this as a classic two-stage model. Um, I put on my, uh, I guess, um, page Fortnite hat, and that's kind of why I think about it, would be like, you know, you need to at least deal with that. You know, what attracts the peacekeepers first, then uh, what are the effects later? Um, the other thing is, I think in the control variables, you need kind of like, a, you need a variable destruction. You talk about how people want to go back to the towns, but they can't because they're destroyed and they want to rebuild. And another control variables are actually about destruction. They're about... Uh, number of deaths and maybe and it's probably true that those things are correlated but um, you know you, I think that would probably and especially when you get into matching that's what you're going to want to match on is like how destroy you know do peacekeepers prevent or encourage more destruction of property and things like that um, those are just two quick points I have three uh, I just have three thoughts that you don't have to respond to any of them is just something to maybe keep in your mind for future drafts um, the first one is that um, you know, there's this argument out there that third-party intervention makes uh, civil wars last longer, and it seems like that's kind of you're hinting at with some of the things you're talking about. This would provide a very interesting mechanism to kind of build in that literature that maybe one reason why third-party intervention makes these wars last longer is because more people are displaced. 
Uh, so it might be something as a framing device or something to talk about as an implication that you'd be interested in. Um, the second one is I would love to hear more about this difference between the ratio in IDPs and I guess refugees. And uh, it'd be great maybe in developing this paper further or a different paper. Uh, is it the case that the UN um, peacekeepers, like there's the same amount of displacement happening, but like the UN kind of traps them in or it makes them IDPs versus letting them go out. Or you could see like, you know, the, the reason why you authorize the UN peacekeeping operation at the UN Security Council is because you don't want refugees. So you're saying this, you know, just put them on the borders, keep them there. Uh, and that's what we want. We're happy with that. Uh, and that could be something that I'd be interested in diving into more. And then uh, my third point, um, looking at only African cases makes sense, I guess, methodologically. Um, but, you know, when I, my wife's Italian, so, you know, when I hear things about refugees instantly, I'm thinking about Libya and Syria and people coming across uh, the Mediterranean. Uh, and so for those two cases specifically, Libya and Syria, say we had a counterfactual where we put the UN, I don't see how we get more, um, you know, refugees or more displaced people. So what's the difference if the UN is in Libya and Syria? And that's what I think about is like, is now that the, instead of them going to Europe, they're now trapped in Libya, their IDPs inside those two countries, or what is kind of the effect uh, you would have in those big cases where we have no UN, big UN presence, um, but there are still high refugees kind of, there's a different mechanism going on there. So if you put the UN in those cases, what changes? Um, those are just kind of the thoughts I have maybe for future drafts of the paper. Yeah, I think that, thank you all. All five points uh, are fantastic. Um, yeah, my only, my only, I think, and I, I think they're all completely valid. Um, my only thing, my only gut reaction is that if the UN was in Libya or Syria, definitely, I think, more IDPs. Um, but I don't know if there would be fewer refugees in those cases. I think that you said that. Uh, it maybe, maybe even if the UN was there, the number of individuals who are trying to flee to Europe uh, would be even greater or equal to uh, what, what has happened in, in, in the past five, ten years. So, but definitely I think you would see more IDPs probably. But again, I think that's, that's, specu that's speculation. I think these are, are sort of just gut reactions. Um, Say, say more about that, Philip, because yeah. there are already off-the-charts numbers of IDPs in Libya and Syria. Yeah. So like, what's the mechanism where the UN would lead to more, given the huge numbers that already exist? I think, I think it goes back to what we, were, what we were saying before. I think even more individuals than we see now would feel safer in certain areas of Libya or Syria and they would flee to those areas, even though in, in the current case, in the current way, the current situation, they would, given the instability and un uncertainty, they would stay where they are at the moment, or they'd feel unable to, to leave their homes because uh, there isn't any safe area nearby. And that's basically what our yeah. fundamental argument is, yeah. That would like change the like the not the total number of displaced, but the the ratio between internal versus external displaced. I think that's what our your mechanism would be most convincing if that was the case. I think is the way I would state that argument. If yeah, Lise, did you want to say anything uh, after Ben's comments? You started and then no, no, it's totally fine. I just I I think there is tremendous pressure 
on the that the Security Council feels pressure and they're exerting pressure on peacekeepers to stem the tide of refugees, right? So wherever the UN is present, there, there is this idea that you have to stop people from moving across borders. And we see, you know, for example, in the Central African Republic, it's we don't see an awful lot of movement across the border anymore. It's fairly stable. People are coming back, but we don't see a lot of people fleeing, but we do see increasing internally internally displaced, internal displacement. And that, that I, um, uh, it's hard to engage in the counterfactual of would there be more displacement if the peacekeepers weren't there? And my gut feeling is that there probably would not be as much internal displacement were the peacekeepers not there. In terms of refugees, if the peacekeepers weren't there, were there would there be more or fewer refugees? Probably in most cases there would be more, but it's really hard to figure out that counterfactual. Great. Um, so <laughs> you end. We end on a not very satisfying yeah, yeah. note, but anyway, <laughs> that's how it goes sometimes. <laughs> the, the, the whole talk is full of you know uh, unhappy topics or the whole conversation. So of course we're going to end on something unhappy, but we're happy to have a really interesting conversation about an important topic. And I want to thank Lise and Philip for um, presenting, for staying up night to do it, for having a great conversation with us. And, um, you know, we look forward to doing it again, hopefully in person, um, staying in touch with you guys. Um, so thank you everyone for uh, attending. And, um, you know, normally we'd have a round of applause, but obviously we can't really do it as much virtually. Um, remember our next seminar, two weeks from today, Jonathan Markowitz um, will be at 4.30 on, I guess that is the 27th. So um, hope to see you again soon. Have a great night, everybody. If you'd like to follow the Notre Dame International Security Center seminar series, please visit our website at politicalscience.nd.edu forward slash ndisc forward slash or follow us on Twitter at hashtag nd underscore isc. Please note that opinions expressed in the seminar series are solely those of the participants or speakers, not of the International Security Center or the University of Notre Dame which take no institutional position. Music for this podcast is licensed under sample swap.